The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Ape Alua Iorton. Ape Alua fell in love with aviation on his very first flight as a toddler and has lived with a single-minded goal of becoming an airline pilot since then. This end goal of a career in aviation has influenced all his major life decisions, including his choice to pursue a bachelor's degree in geography. He also spent a year teaching geography at a high school after university, where he developed a love for sharing knowledge and mentoring. Ape Lua completed the Integrated Commercial Pilot Course, ICPC, at the Moncton Flight College in 2016, after which he instructed with the school for two years before launching his airline career at a regional carrier. In addition to his busy schedule, he still finds time to instruct and mentor pilots on the side. While he admits it is a juggling act, he nevertheless finds joy and fulfillment in bringing people into the family that is aviation. Appreciative of the peculiarities that enabled him to build an airline career in just four years, Ape Alua founded the Vectored Approach Consulting, an initiative driven by the vision of lowering the barriers to aviation and improving the flight training experience overall. I truly could not be more excited to have him join me today. Welcome, Ape Alua. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks, Laura. Thank you so much for finding the time. I remember meeting you in passing and thinking you seemed really cool. So the fact that we've been able to connect and cross paths again, I think is pretty neat. Yeah, it is pretty interesting to uh, be able to sit down and have uh conversation when there's no time crunch going on yes especially when there's not passengers and a plane that needs to go out so mm. even in that case we won't take up too much of your time we'll jump right on in how did you get your start in aviation uh well it started in 95 maybe 94 i was uh on a flight with my mom it's the first flight i remember so I'll, we'll call it my first flight and uh, it was at night flying from Abuja to Kaduna in Nigeria. I'm not sure which of the legs in that, that route. And the whole flight, I kept bothering my mom to let me go see the cockpit. That I just wanted to see how it worked. Eventually, after we landed, my mom caved and she got one of the flight attendants to take me up to the cockpit. And uh, I still remember one of the pilots pulled me into his lap. And uh, so in the cockpit, there's a switch you flip that lights up all the lights. And that's how we check for burnt out light bulbs. And so he flipped that switch and all the lights came on and the fire alarm sounded. And I was hooked. I was, I got out of that cockpit and I told my mom, I'm going to be a pilot. And I told all my friends and I never changed my mind since that day. How did all your friends react to hearing this sort of confident young kid saying, I'm going to be a pilot? <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because lots of, uh, I mean, growing up, we weren't really very comfortable uh, financially. And so it was kind of one of those, yeah, shut up, you're talking too much kind of things. But uh, guess who had the last lash? <laughs> I'm a pilot now. <laughs> but yeah, it was kind of, it was, I mean, at the time I didn't know how it would happen. It was just one of those things. And I think I really appreciate my parents for keeping that dream alive 
and you know building doing all the work to give me that opportunity to chase that dream so i'm I guess a, a slight, I was slightly too young to have the opportunity to ever actually go and visit the flight deck uh, on a flight as a little kid. And when I hear the people that had that opportunity, I think even though I still found my way to aviation, maybe how much more uh, influential it would have been to have that opportunity. So I'm just even envious hearing that you had that chance, let alone having all the lights and of course the, the alarms go off just as well. And again, I get, I get the sense you do not come from an aviation family. So to have parents that are supportive of that dream, and even if it seems lofty and maybe uh, like a like a lot for a little kid. I mean, how fortunate are you to have the the support and everything that goes into making that opportunity come together? Yeah, I know. I really really appreciate that. And it's one of the things uh, I'm going to try to change with uh, some things I'm working on. I want airlines should let kids come to the cockpit because that's a big thing. I I know two other pilots who also got their start in the same way. You know, going to see the cockpit. I think that's that's a tradition that's an integral part of aviation and we need to bring that back. Yeah, no, it'd be, it'd be really nice. I know, I, I hope to see that change come back to the industry. I mean, if it's a little kid and if there's the time and it's not a, not a hazard, not sort of holding up the show, I think there, I think there should always be uh, that, the room for that because it, you sort of see those jokes of like, ah, oh, is this a future pilot? But it really might make the difference for someone becoming a pilot or not. Exactly, exactly. Now, as we mentioned, aviation was maybe sort of not on your family's radar. It was something very much that you wanted to do. And initially, when you started your post-secondary pursuits, you studied uh, a Bachelor of Science in Geography. How do you yes. believe your experiences with that subject maybe influenced the way you approached aviation later on? I chose geography because of aviation. So my parents, in return for sponsoring my flight training, they asked that I got a university education. And I, I thought, my, my thinking was, I wanted to do something that would be helpful, that would be kind of a little step in the same direction as I wanted my life to go. And geography just fit my, uh, my maternal grandfather is a professor in geography. And so growing up, I grew up surrounded by encyclopedias and atlases, and you know, we always got the new encyclopedias every year. So I kind of grew up in a geography household and my, I had an uncle who also studied geography. And so at the point where I had to, I was going to get a university degree, it just made sense. It was the logical thing to do, get a geography degree. Uh, it helped because lots of student pilots will tell you that meteorology in, uh, during their flight training was a challenge. Well, it was kind of a challenge for me, but not a lot, because a lot of the terms I heard or I was seeing were things I'd learned. I mean, I knew about cirrus clouds and cumulus clouds way before I got into ground school. So that was a good move. And um, if I do have children someday, uh, there's a good chance they're going to go to uh, university for geography. Let's <laughs> just say that. <laughs> I grew up in a household where um, my parents did a lot of maybe international cooking and they decided that the way to help my sister and I improve our geography and understand our place in the world was to have a world map right by our dinner table. And so oftentimes we'd be sent, okay, this meal was traditionally from Pakistan, go find Pakistan on the map. And that would sort of be how we, uh, I guess, sort of made things more international while living mostly in the same city. Um, 
geography is aviation adjacent. I completely understand why this, the decision would have been made to say, well, this kind of puts me along that path. It feels like I'm moving towards my ultimate goal of working as a pilot. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't know. I, I think, I still think geography is very interesting. It's actually a very big part of my day to day. And it, yeah, having the exposure to that would really um, give you, yeah, that early exposure before you end up in ground school. Mm. Yes, it, yes, it does. I'm curious though, maybe sort of how you found meteorology, uh, rather, how you found meteorology being uh, presented to you <clears> through <throat> geography, because you mentioned that that was sort of your, uh, your introduction to sort of cirrus and uh, strata clouds. <laughs> Uh, well, so in doing geography and going to school in Nigeria, uh, the educational system back there is still in the 80s, unfortunately. <laughs> so you had to memorize entire textbooks, and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, so I, it was, I had that experience of drinking through a fire hose and learning all these things and all these terms that didn't really make sense and tectonic plates. And uh, so the Nigerian uh, climate is pretty, is simpler. We only have two air masses that affect our weather. Unlike in Canada, we have what, six or so that interact to get, give us our weather. Now, we had only two, but we had to learn the other air masses from other parts of the world, mm. even though it, there's no reason to. So just, just imagine you in a high school or college here in geography, and they're teaching you about the climate in Eastern Europe and the air masses there and how they're formed and the desert winds. And you're learning all of that. It just, it's not the same. Uh, it's not directly relevant to you. But back home, you kind of had to drink from the fire hose. So going into ground school and then learning kind of like a smaller subset from that firehouse was so much easier because I wasn't drinking from a firehouse. Mm -hmm. I was just discarding. I was like, oh yeah, I knew about that. Oh, so that other part's not like that? All right, discard that kind of thing. So it, it, made it, uh, it made it easier. It was almost like a revision. And then some things finally made sense because now I could relate it to something practical as in, oh, this creates turbulence and turbulence is bad in airplanes. So now, oh, now convective clouds make more sense now, kind of thing. Yeah, and even as you're sharing that, I'm mindful of uh, even just sort of the different weather systems and not weather systems, but the way that uh, topography influences the weather. I mean, if you have hills, if you have mountains, you're going to have different changes with weather and um, I guess all the different things that come with that. And as much as I'd like to say, oh, if I was sitting here in Canada, having the opportunity to learn about Eastern European air masses, um, as an adult, it's very easy for me to say, oh, I would have been precocious and super into it. And no, as a teenager, I would have not cared at all because it wouldn't have <laughs> applied to me. Exactly. Now your aviation and pilot dreams have truly just sort of helped to navigate your entire life. And after finishing your degree in geography, you began working as a geography teacher. And after that, you started at Moncton Flight College. How did this jump happen? And how did you first learn about MFC's program? Okay, so uh, after the deal after university was, I would go to university and go to flight school right after. Now in Nigeria, uh, it's set up. So after your tertiary school, after post-secondary, you're required to work for the government for a year. Hmm. And that's, a, that's kind of a 
relic of the civil war that happened just to foster because it's a Nigeria is the size of Ontario but we have almost 150 to 200 different languages in that small space completely different languages English to French to German kind of thing and so that's what fueled our civil war and in the aftermath of the civil war they created the scheme where after your post-secondary education you got sent to the opposite side of the country and you went to go work there and the government would pay for, pay you you'd be a government like a federal worker in that time period and the community would look after you because you're away from home now mm. so uh it's pretty it's pretty neat you get people cooking food for you you know they get you get accepted into their families it's a nice thing anyways so after my university degree in geography I went to uh, go do that scheme and I was posted to uh, high school and so I you know took up the position of geography teacher there for a year uh, now while I was teaching I was also putting together my plan for flight school and uh how did I learn about MFC? <laughs> well, my dad is very, uh, I'm not sure what the word is, the polite word for it, but he's very, <laughs> he likes, he runs the family like an organization, like a corporation. <clears throat> very organized, very focused. Yeah, very, yeah. And so when it was time to pick a flight school, he got me to create a report, a spreadsheet with uh, three different flight schools, the cost breakdowns, the advantages, the pros and cons, and uh, which one I preferred and why and all that. So I did a bunch of research, a lot of research, and I narrowed it down to, we first started by location, uh, South Africa, North America, and Australia. And I, you know, scored the internet, the forums, reading about this and that. And reading through pilot forums is so hard because every two pages, they start going after each other. Or I guess we start going after each other. <laughs> so it's so true. <laughs> it's so, and so there's 100 pages on this one subject. But out of the 100 pages, maybe only 40 are actually relevant to the subject. Anyways. So I went through all of that and I realized that uh, Canada, North America, would be my best option because luckily for me, I came to the realization that I not only had to go to flying school, I had to think about what I would do after flying school. Uh, what happens, what happened at the time, it still happens now, was a lot of kids uh, in Nigeria would go to flying school there is a fine school in Nigeria. There's two of them, I think, at this point. They'd go there or go to the States or go wherever, get their 200 hours, and then move back to the country. But they couldn't find a job because there is no, uh, there's no general aviation in Nigeria. So they would be stuck with nothing to do for years. And some of them would you know, save up more funds, go to Europe, who get typewritten and, you know, do one of those uh, pay to fly things kind of thing. And so Canada uh, had a great immigration process. Uh, there were great job opportunities after flying school. And so that's how I settled, I zeroed in on Canada. 
and then I had to write another. So I first had the report about where to go to Canada. Then I wrote another report about what fine school to build in Canada. And the reason I went to MFC at the end of it was they had a nice website. <laughs> like, that's, what, that's what it came down to. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to agree. Yeah, you try and look on an aviation forum uh, looking for information about an exam or, oh, how should I go about this? And it very quickly divulges from, this is the resources I think you should use if you're going for this exam to anyone who flies a 172 is an idiot. And it's, it, there's, <laughs> you, you've scrolled down three posts. And <laughs> I know, it's and ridiculous. You're, you're sort of there like, no, no, I, I want more. I want more like Sam Ron stuff. Can, <laughs> can I go back to that, please? Um, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a very tr true observation. I've, I've noticed the same thing. I don't think many people would argue with that, uh, with that stance. I'm really intrigued though. I mean, even if it's a byproduct of, uh, I guess, sort of post-civil war in Nigeria, the idea of having people intentionally by design go live in another community. I mean, if you're in Abuja and you're, well, uh, if you're being posted to, I mean, like a, an Igbo or Fula community, that's going to be very different. And I think, I don't know, I, I understand sort of why that came to be, but I, I like the idea. As someone that's just hearing it for the first time, it sounds like a really interesting and potentially very thought-provoking way of trying to find more in common as opposed to being so divided. Yes, it, it, it has its, it has its pros and its cons. Unfortunately, uh, well, politics there's people trying to take it away because they think it's served its purpose but I think it can't really have served its purpose it's an ongoing thing integration is an ongoing thing and there'll always be I mean we still have exchange programs in the west where you go to school in a different country it's the same concept you're going mm -hmm. to go learn another culture so yeah, I agree it's a great it's a great program now what were the most challenging and rewarding aspects about pursuing flight training in Canada <laughs> so <laughs> that was not story. the sound I was expecting. <laughs> I have this story of uh, when I landed in uh, Moncton for the first time. This was January January eighth, twenty fifteen. I'll never forget that date. Uh, so I landed, got off this little Q four hundred, and that you know, and I had my winter jacket. I was prepared that I had that set up. But I uh, came out, the door opened. I came out the door to walk down the stairs and my jacket froze over. Literally, I was walking and my jacket was making cracking noises. Like when you crumple up paper. Mm. Yeah. And at that moment, I knew that I'd made a mistake. <laughs> I, <knew it. laughs> I joke. But yeah, the cold, the cold was not funny. And that winter, the winter of 2015 was a bad winter. I think we've only had one winter as bad as that one since then. So that was the biggest challenge, you know, just refueling a Cessna. And a Cessna is a high wing. So you're standing up and then, so all the winds in your face and uh, your fingers, my fingers would be, I'd lose fueling in my fingers. So I have to like lock them around the fuel pump to make sure pumping the gas oh it was it was fun and uh, I remember feeling my ears for the first time like growing up in a temp in you know the tropics you never feel your ears unless someone slaps you <laughs> but I remember once being so cold that I could feel my ears 
and I thought, oh, what, what have you done? What did you do? So uh, yeah, the cold was a challenge. Uh, now, rewarding aspects. I think flying in Canada is, there's such a diverse uh, weather spectrum. You know, you have the thunderstorms, the squalls in the summer, you've got the snow. So maybe in flight training, not so much. It's not a lot because you're, you're uh, restricted in what you're allowed to fly in. You, know, you can't go flying in a snowstorm during flight training. But definitely in my airline career, it's great because now I you know, have experience landing in snow or like navigating around snowstorms, which is a very different beast from flying somewhere else where you just worry about uh, regular summer thunderstorms and all that. So I think the weather makes Canada a great uh, spot for learning and uh, developing in aviation. That's one thing I'm always mindful of is that uh, you see the jokes whenever it's minus 30 Celsius here and you're trying to get your commercial license done and it's just been snowing for days and you think, you know, this is why people do flight training in Florida and Arizona. <laughs> and yeah. I, of course though, the, 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 I mean, exactly sort of the con of that is that you train only in one climate. You're used to that weather system, uh, those temperatures, and you don't have the opportunity to just sort of see that huge variation. I remember I, in my own flight training, there was one winter I didn't fly. The following winter, that was a bit of an adjustment. <laughs> to get yeah. back to winter flying, even <laughs> in a flight training context. So yeah, there's the benefits and yeah, benefits and the uh, challenges of having the different weather systems that we do. But I don't know, I, I find that that keeps it interesting. I, I like weather. So it's always fun for me to see what new weather system is cropping up. Yeah, and I think it also, it's good because it adds a level of complexity. So as an example, when, um, when I go, when I'm teaching single engine, I always dress, well, my students find it funny because I seem overdressed because I have ski pants on and I have three jackets and I have like warm boots. But then I explain the rationale to them. I'm not planning, I'm not planning for the flight. I'm planning for an unscheduled landing in a field somewhere, right? And they're like, oh, yeah. And it just, it just makes you think, it makes you, uh, rather than just go hop in an airplane, go flying. Now you're thinking, uh, you know, when I'm flying in the winter and flying on, uh, in, uh, doing IFR flying, think about icing. You have to worry about where's the freezing level today and things like that, how it fits the cloud deck. Can you punch through it? Can you not? Is there turbulence of the ice in it? Things like that. So that complexity, I think, just helps you think better. And thinking is one of the big parts of, learning to be a pilot like there's a technical aspect but a huge part of learning to be a pilot is learning to think outside of the box kind of thing kind of see the big picture yeah that's it now while attending msc you are also working as a dispatcher at the flight school what was it like to see the operation side of a flight school while also being a student uh that was the second best part of uh, my time at the flight college because as we mentioned earlier, uh, aviation is about seeing the big picture and working with that big picture. <clears throat> Being a dispatcher was 
great for that because apart from learning how to fly the technical stuff i also got to learn how to fill log books and that keyed into my training so i understood flight time air time things like that was nothing so i'd be in ground school and my classmates were asking uh what did you say was the difference between airtime and flight time again? And I'm looking at them like, dude, it, once airtime, once flight time, that's the difference. <laughs> Just because I was used to dealing with that at work. It also helped uh, because there's something called hangar talk where pilots in the hangar just like talk about, you know, things. And as a dispatcher, you would sit down behind that desk and you'd have flight instructors going in and out, students, and you just heard more. You you heard the, the flight instructor would land from a bad flight and you know talk about a bunch of things that happened. And I'd make mental notes, note to self, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Or a pilot examiner would land and be like, whoa, man, this student did this. I haven't had someone do that in a long time. And I'd be like, note to self, do that. So it kind of, it, it really helped my training. And I would say to anyone who I talk to, if you can get into dispatch, it's a good way to get into the operation of the school and a good way to learn. No, I think that's exactly it. By having the opportunity to be both a student and a disaster in tandem, you're developing that network. Your people are starting to see you as a professional working in aviation. And yeah, just by virtue of being there, being at that desk, being the people, being the person that someone has to come up to and ask, hey, is my plane ready? Or can you tell me more about the status of this aircraft? Is it out of maintenance? You, yeah, start to see the big picture. You start to understand all the different pieces and parts of uh, just running the day-to-day -day of a flight school. But I really like how you touched on hangar, hangar talk and just, yeah, being around a bunch of pilots talking about it day by day. And I, my favorite is always if I'm just around dispatch on a quiet day and someone else comes in and is like, yeah, my student has a question and I don't know how to answer it. And watching everyone work together and kind of troubleshoot that, it's it's yeah, just a great learning opportunity and you've done nothing other than just kind of just be in that moment with everyone. Exactly, and the best part, you're getting paid to be in that moment. It's, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, and then uh, the other thing, it's funny, it always, we've talked a lot about meteorology during this conversation, but working dispatch also gives grounds you in meteorology because now you really got to understand that weather. Because if a system's coming in earlier than forecast, you need to be able to pull people in and you know decide where which training areas people should go to and all that kind of stuff. So it also helps in that aspect. I always remember seeing the dispatchers at my very first flight school, and sometimes they would call it to the practice area and get a pirate. And I don't know why, but that just blew my mind that they could just like call a pilot to say, what is they're doing right now? As opposed to using the METAR, the ATIS. It was like, no, I'm going to like literally phone a friend. That always, <laughs> it's not that novel, but it was very cool to me. It is, it is cool. It is cool. Now, once you completed your flight training, you became an instructor with MFC. What were some of the similarities you found in instructing as compared to previously teaching geography? Dealing with young adults uh it's pretty much the same teaching teaching a class of 15 to 18 year olds is almost the same as teaching a class of 18 to 25 year olds you know the same uh you need to set boundaries you know 
early in the class and knowing how to gauge the mood of your classroom and control that mood. And every class has a troublemaker. It's just the thing. There's always that one student who is going to say the thing you said not to say or stand up at the wrong time. And so going into teaching, I also taught ground school while I was an instructor. Teaching ground school it was kind of the first, well, I think my uh, learning curve wasn't as steep as yeah. it could have been because I didn't experience a lot of problems I heard from my colleagues who were like, oh, how do you do this? You know, I already knew to project my voice, you know, knew to make eye contact, knew to move around, you know, uh, make your pre presence, spreading your presence in the classroom kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was really similar. The other thing is mentoring. Lots of, I think that's what separates a good teacher from a great teacher. A great teacher is a mentor. Yeah. A good teacher will just, you know, give you the knowledge and, you know, help you along. But there's that aspect of really taking an interest in every student. And it gets, it's, it's emotional, it's emotionally stressful, you know, but, you know, taking an interest in that student and being able to, uh, it's almost like you take the student, you interact with them, you realize what their baseline is, what their performance, general performance level is. And so every time something happens that they dip below that performance line, you sit down with them and you're like, okay, what's going on? Something's going on. And then they're like, hey man, so actually, yada 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 whatever happened and you're like you know and at some point they're like wow it looks like it seems like you can read minds but it's just that you you know you've kind of realized how each student behaves and you work on that same as in ground school when that noisy student that problem student when you have a class where they're quiet at the end of the class you pull them aside and you're like hey man what's wrong yeah something's up <laughs> yeah and yeah, so that 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 was something that's similar, and I've kind of carried that on. And I've had that I've been lucky to always have instructors that were also willing to mentor me at the same time. So, and I guess it's I mean it's not a revolutionary idea, but of all the instructors that I've had over the years, and I I joke the the joke that I make is that I've had a jazz ground school's worth of instructors over the years. Um, that they were always people that, I mean, I liked them, they were nice, or maybe I didn't really click with them, but I never really, and maybe some of them I looked up to, but they were never really mentors. It was very much sort of a transactional teaching environment. And if I wanted mentors, they were probably someone I looked for outside of my flight school, outside of being my instructor. So mm -hmm. I, how fortunate <clears throat> are you to have had the experience of getting to have mentorship through your instructors? I, I think that would have like I know just in my own experience, I think that would have changed maybe how I approach things or just saw flight training overall. Oh, yeah. So, so my, my second aviation mentor, my first aviation mentor was a family friend we had back home who kind of helped guide my thought when I was playing flight school. But uh, my biggest mentor in aviation is Patrick Baswara. And he was my instructor from day one at Moncton Flight College. And it was funny because he was my ground school instructor, but also my flying instructor, which is very rare. And so he taught me ground school all, he taught all my ground school from PPL to right up until 
IFR, I think. And he also did all my flying PPL through CPL into multi. Uh, so sometimes I'll make a joke and say, uh, he just created a clone of himself. <laughs> but yeah, he was such a mentor to me. At every point in time, he, uh, he guided my decision-making. Like he would say, okay, you know, you should be thinking about this now. Uh, he really encouraged me to go into the instructor program. And after like, you know, knowing me, he's like, man, you'd make a great instructor. You should, you know, go into the instructor program. And, you know, he taught me how to structure, you know, I was in the ICPC program. And uh, at some point he was like, okay, stop your ICPC here. Because the ICPC program is, uh, there's different types of ICPC. There's ICPC A uh, without the multi-IFR, there's the ICPC IR, and then there's the third ICPC, which is with multi-crew. And, and so it was like, hey, instead of going through the full ICPC, because you're not going to need the multi-crew yet, and airline's going to teach you multi-crew anyways, why don't you sign up ICPC A, do your multi-IFR modular, and then take the leftover money and do an instructor rating while you work. And that's what I did. And it worked out great. And uh, the other thing, when I started instructing, he told me, as soon as you can, get into the IFR department. And when the, when the department opened up, it was like, have you put your application in? You know, I got into IFR and then got into multi-training. And so, you know, when the time came to upgrade to class two, he told me, hey, go get your upgrade. He gave me study materials. We would have coffee and talk about, you know, things to think about and watch out for. So yeah, he's been, until um, now, <laughs> yeah, we both, we're both at WestJet now and he still does the same thing. Like when I started my training, he gave me all his notes and his little checklists and things. So I had the monkey. I mean, you're using the term mentor, which I think is entirely accurate, but there was also a term that was shared with me recently, which is the idea of a sponsor in aviation. And this is someone mm -hmm. that might be a few steps ahead of you or many steps ahead of you, but there's someone that sort of sees your potential and is willing and able to, I guess, sort of see those opportunities for you as they come up. They're able to sort of point them out to you as they arise, whereas you may not be I guess, aware of them or not sort of in tune with the bigger picture to sort of see that this is an opportunity or, or to see it for what it is. So mm -hmm. again, I mean, how, again, how fortunate are you to have had that experience? I, I wish that that had been mine from a flight training perspective. Yeah, I wish. And that's, that's what I try to do now. I, I try to make sure I do it with my students. I make sure all my students get that experience if they want it, obviously. And uh, I try to provide that experience to anyone I get in contact with who's in aviation you know I'm always willing to talk about certain things and give them pointers that things like that. Now did you have a favorite lesson as an instructor for flying and for ground school? Hmm. For ground school my favorite lesson what's my favorite lesson to teach? Well my favorite lesson is theory of flight. I love theory of flight. It's just because theory of flight is straightforward. It, it's 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 like it's physics it's it's there's no memorization required there's no i mean it's a lift it's drag it's thrust it's you know it's weight <laughs> yeah yeah that the fourth one weight uh, <laughs> it's 
No memorization required. Sorry, I just have to razz on you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I haven't taught theory of flight in a while. I've been teaching IFR, lots of IFRs. But yeah, it was just so intuitive. I found it intuitive kind of thing. And I, when I was a student, I loved it. And I guess that also carried over into my instructor days. So I always loved theory of flight lessons. Uh, The other thing I love to teach was ADFs like NDB intercepts and VOR intercepts and all that. Lots of people have difficulty in that, but it, I mean, I'd like to think this, my class did very well in it because I made sure to hammer it in. And that also came from Patrick because when I was a student, he also hammered it in. He was like, you have to understand this. So he taught me like five different ways to do it. And so now I have so many different ways to teach it, but you're going to learn it if you like it or not. <laughs> uh, now, flying wise, I love the spin lesson. <laughs> I love the, <laughs> I love it because my students, you know, I, I've had guys who puke, you know, students who love it, students who are scared. And I take it as an opportunity to try to stretch their, uh, put them in the stretch zone and stretch their limits. And just just show, okay, I'm here. This is happening. It's out of control. It's not out of control, but to them, it feels out of control. But it's a confidence builder for them, right? They they control the aircraft in this attitude that's unusual. And so when they come land in a crosswind, when they're getting bumped around, it's not as dramatic, I think, because it's like, we're not in a spin, you know. We're doing great. We're you have power. We're under control. We're not falling from the sky. So yeah, those that the spin lesson. I love the spin lesson. Spins are definitely fun. I remember after I did my first spin lesson, having this moment where of like just like just not hyper confidence in like potentially a dangerous way, but just feeling like so suave, so smooth. Like I have nothing more to learn. I have conquered aviation. Like I can, I can spin and um, yeah. Like w- when am I going to jazz? Like it was really, exactly. <laughs> it was such a confidence build, but not to the point where like, again, I know for myself it was never like a hazardous confidence to have, um, but it was just, yeah, like a, a real confidence builder. And further to, I can even just sort of think of um, going through, sort of the lead up to spins. You do stalls mm-hmm. and it's the scariest thing that's ever happened. And then you go like, mm-hmm. okay, we've done stalls and we're gonna do power on stalls. And you're like, well, that's just, again, like we're just we're just taking our chances. Um, yeah. And then you're like, okay, we're gonna do a spin. And it's the scariest thing you've ever done. You're like, we, we have just like, just thrown all responsibility for our lives out of the one. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, okay, now we're gonna do a spiral dive. <laughs> yeah. Just, just there, just, and I think you don't, you get so used to and get like those four, those lessons it's progressively more challenging each one. It's slightly more intimidating. It's something that you have mm-hmm. to build your way up to. And then you get to the uh, spiral dive and it feels a little anticlimactic, but it's when you kind of understand, oh, what makes this so scary is that it doesn't feel like it's- everything's out of control. It feels pretty okay at first. And when you realize that that's what makes spiral dive so such a hazard, it, it, it's funny, but it's just that sort of like, oh God, they just keep getting more and more into, oh, okay, this is, this is fine. I know, and uh, I've I had a chat with a colleague, and we were talking about how flight training, for some reason, along the lines, we've lost the emphasis on things we should emphasize. So what you're just describing, where the spin students have more fear, apprehension, we'll call it apprehension, mm-hmm. for the spin lesson, 
than the spiral dive lesson. You know, I give control in doing a spiral dive and the students like, you know, taking their sweet time and they're super chill and doing the spin lesson since holding the seat and hyperventilating. And it's like, if, if we were, I mean, it's very unlikely, but if we were to have an incident, it's more likely we would have it during the spiral dive lesson than during the spin lesson because you're descending at 4,000 feet per minute from, I mean, from 2,000 feet, from 1,000 feet here, you don't have much time, right? Versus a spin where if you do everything correctly and you're, uh, you're loaded properly, it's much less of a hazard if you're not flying a tomahawk. So yeah, it's a, it is a thing. Now, after instructing, you began working as a first officer at an airline. What was the most valuable thing you learned as an instructor that you were able to carry with you when you became a first officer? Uh, always learn, always learn. I, one of the things I learned, I picked up over the years was teaching helps you learn. And my school of thought of teaching is to learn from your students as you teach them because it helps you teach them better. Uh, look at it this way. No one likes a one-sided conversation. Everyone likes a two-way conversation where they also get to say something. So your student, giving your student that opportunity to teach you creates a better bond between the two of you where now they're more receptive to whatever information you're giving them because now they feel more of an equal to you. You know, it lowers their barriers to learning kind of thing. And so I've always taken that to heart and I try to learn from everyone. And moving as a first officer, the biggest thing was just to learn at every moment, every moment till today, till tomorrow, every moment at work is a learning moment for me. I'm learning uh, with most captains I fly with, I'm learning what to do when something happens. Once in a while with some captains, I'm learning what not to do when something you know, goes on. So that's the one thing that you know, I really uh, brought with me that learning, that willingness to learn at every given moment. And that is sort of what I hear from people going from a flight training, sorry, rather from being a flight instructor right into sort of a 705 operation is that you need to be able to be fully receptive and just a sponge. Like it's the drinking up from a fire hose, but also see every opportunity that you can to learn and trying to take advantage of it it's it's a lot I'm I have not done it I know mm. it's a lot though and just oh, yeah. yeah imagining sort of how overwhelming it could be but also trying to find something that you can learn or reflect on later is uh it's definitely an, an important skill to sort of bring with you now what was the biggest challenge of moving from being an instructor to being a first officer at a 705 as I've mentioned I've, I've not done it myself I understand that mm. there's obviously a lot that goes on with it but what was the biggest challenge Hmm. Well, I, I've always been better at the academic aspect than the skill, the fine aspect of being a pilot. And so for most people, I find the biggest challenge is all the memorization that has to happen. Uh, I was talking to Kate spear a couple of days ago and we're talking about things that you should know that everyone should know as a pilot but you don't know till you get there and one of the things we came up with were flows 
I didn't know what a flow was till I got to the airlines. And then they're like, oh yeah, by the way, you have to learn your flows and learn it in two weeks. And I'm like, oh, there's, that exists. There's no reason why in flight school, we don't show students, oh, there's these things called flows. These are what they are. Don't worry about it. Just, just a primer or even just start preliminary flows kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, I, what people have difficulty in is things like flows, memorizing your takeoff briefing because at the airlines you need to have the takeoff briefings, the emergency briefings all memorized, the emergency procedures. In flight school, your instructor tells you, yeah, you should memorize the emergency procedures, but you know, they don't really check up on it. During the flight test, the examiner is gonna ask you two emergencies. Most times one of them is non-critical. So you grab the checklist. And then most times the second one's the engine failure, the high oil temperature, low oil pressure, engine failure, <laughs> right? So it's really the first time you, you get an emergency checklist and now you have to memorize certain things and memorize the systems and how they interact and be able to know cascade failures. And okay, you lose this, you lose your bleeds, what's going off? Off of that system. So I think the biggest challenge is the academic aspect, all that learning that you have to do. Uh, it takes a lot of studying. It, and a lot of the time it's dry material. I mean, it's you're looking at a schematic of an aircraft and electrical wiring and all that. It can be dry. But put your head down, study, and you'll be fine. Now, what does the average day of a first officer at a 705 operation look like, granted that no two days are the same? So you wake up, uh, I usually wake up an hour before I have to leave because I have my, I'm organized like that. I'm meal prepped and everything, ready to go. So grab your stuff, head out, uh, check the weather while you're on the way to the airport. If you're a good first officer, you know, get to the airport, uh, make your way to the crew room, Usually there's a briefing at the start of the day. And this is one of the big things. Uh, and I tell people it's one of the best skills uh, aviators have. When I say aviators, I don't mean just pilots. I mean, everyone in the aviation industry. You get to the crew room, you meet a bunch of people you've never, you may have never met before. And 30 minutes, you create a crew, you create a workplace. You know, you brief the weather, you brief uh, where you're going, what you're expecting talk about some emergencies, you know, you get a rapport going and that rapport is what carries you through the whole pairing. Uh, so yeah, you do your crew briefing, you get on the airplane, uh, do your checks, do some flows, hit some buttons, flip some switches, uh, do your emergency briefing of the day and, uh, you know, welcome, welcome, pilot, welcome your passengers. And then off you go, first, uh, first, leg. So depending on who's, uh, someone flies and someone talks on the radio kind of thing. Uh, you get to cruise, you do your checklist, and then you bring out your novel. That's what you're into. You do your puzzle while you're in cruise uh, at high altitude. So it's not a critical phase of flight. Uh, then you get to your destination. You make an announcement that no one can hear. Uh, so you get to your destination, you make an announcement, you talk about the weather, what you're expecting, there's going to be turbulence, uh, you bring it in, you land, if you're the pilot flying, you try to have a nice landing, and then, you know, that sets the tone for the pairing. 
sometimes you have a not so nice landing and you're like, yeah, I haven't had my morning coffee. <laughs> um, yeah, and then the pilot, the passengers go off and then, you know, you get new passengers. And after the first leg, it just becomes repetitive. Same thing, you same setup, get the weathers, program the computer and the airplane, then take off, cruise, read a book, announcement no one can hear, and then uh, back down. Uh, yeah, and then you finish, you might have a break in the middle. Uh, oh, the other thing, cold food. No one tells you, as a pilot, you eat a lot of cold food because you pack a lunch and it has to be in your lunch bag. Cold food will kick better over a couple of days, over multiple days. So lots of cold food, there's that. Uh, yeah, and then at the end of the day, you land, you have a debrief with the crew, you talk about what went wrong, what went right, what could have gone better if you have something, and then you retire to your hotel, uh, check in, check your bed for bed bugs, <laughs> make sure you have, uh, the bathroom has all the supplies, conditioner and all that stuff. Turn the room temperature to the coolest setting so you can sleep better. Apparently that's a thing. Uh, yeah, and then lay out your uniform for the next day and then go to bed, do some studying. Yeah, that's a thing. Do some review of the FOM or whatever, the FO, SOPs, FOM and all that. Go to bed, wake up, and you just repeat that cycle until uh, you end up back home. Now you missed one very important part, which is taking the uh, hanger and clipping the drapes closed. Oh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Clip the drapes closed. Yeah, there's. Yeah, the, the aviation <laughs> hack that we all relearn every six months. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you touched on an excellent point, which is something that I was always so impressed by when I was working with an airline, which is that there'd be that, that initial briefing of the day, the crew would all come together. And in my case, it was a, it was a base where I could see the pilots all really knew each other. It was a smaller base. So it was not necessarily meeting someone for the first time, but it was the, the professionalism of the entire crew just to sort of be in that moment. They knew their role. They knew what was expected of them. I knew that pilots would rehearse an emergency, but getting to understand that cabin crew also rehearsed an emergency. And that was a part of the day. It was very much, uh, it was a crew. It was not two teams that were working in tandem. It was very much a holistic four-person team. And it, yeah, it was always very, very impressive to sort of see how, I mean, it's a testament to the training and the personalities, but how easily everyone knew their role, knew what to do and just would show up. And that was it. They were, they were that crew. It was always really impressive to see. Now, you're the founder of The Vectored Approach, an aviation consulting group driven by the vision to lower barriers for those wanting to get into aviation and how to improve and enhance the flight training experience for student pilots. How did TVA come to be? Well, so TVA, or the idea for TVA, but not the name TVA, because that was lots of work figuring out that name, but the idea for what it is was something I always had in mind to do at the end of my career. So basically when I was in my 50s or 60s and had more time than not, would be what I would do to give back to the community and try to you know, develop my pilots. But then uh, COVID hit and this summer, one, some, one of the summer, I forget which of them, no, I don't forget. Summer 2020, I uh, went to go see my mentor, Patrick at uh, DeBert in Nova Scotia. 
and we're just standing in the parking lot just talking and I'm talking about the idea and he goes okay so why don't you start it now and I'm like what do you mean that's my retirement plan and he's like yeah but you don't have anything to do right now you have all you have is time and that's what you were going to do when you had time so and I thought oh that's true and so you know I sat down and I thought and it took me months to come up with the vector approach as a name and you know I got in touch with some colleagues who uh you know liked the idea and also had had the idea in some form in their heads and we came together and we started working on it and it's it's almost taking up a life of its own at this point where uh it's sometimes it's overwhelming because you know and I'm sure you know the feeling of starting something it's easy to start something but then at some point the thing has a momentum of its own and now you have to hang on you have to you know now there's deadlines to be met and you know now there's responsibilities and but it's uh it's it's been a great journey and just the few people I've had you know I've come into contact with it's it's been great seeing how we've helped in their uh in their journey now as you mentioned you're sort of focusing on sort of improving and enhancing the flight training experience for student pilots and it sounds from what we've uh, mentioned earlier that you had a pretty remarkably great flight training experience and i guess sort of what are you doing or what is tva doing to really sort of improve that experience for other student pilots uh so right now we do a one-on-one -on -one session with pilots, students, or people who want to be pilots. And we sit down with you and we get, you know, we have a conversation with you, kind of get what your ideas are or what you think of what you think aviation is. And then from the inside, we tell you, okay, this thing's not, not feasible, but this is what you can do, X, Y, Z. And basically do what my mentors and all of my other mentors did for me you know uh the other day i was talking to someone and he said uh he has a family and he's doing pushing flight training on the side and he was telling me about how oh we he would get the one flight here and there like maybe once a week or and i told him oh no that's a bad idea instead what you should do is try to find stack your days off and do blocks of days so do doing three days of training every two weeks is more effective actually than doing one day of training every week just because you have you learn something you consolidate that thing you learn the third thing and then you come back whenever you come back and you just consolidate that third thing instead of learning something not consolidating it and then you come back the next week and you have to relearn that thing and it's just stretches out kind of thing. so little pieces of advice like that or you know telling someone hey if you're on a budget you don't need to get the multi-ifr right off the bat you can get your cpl and get your instructor rating if it's a good fit for you and while you instruct you can get your multi and you can get your ifr at a discount at most schools things like that are things no one knows and no one is has the time to tell people i guess or even how to write up an aviation resume 
because aviation resumes look different than regular resumes. Airlines are looking for different things. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of what we have been doing uh, so far. We're also looking at going into high schools, doing career day uh, lectures, you know, talking about aviation, the opportunities. Uh, I hope to be able to go, I hope for TVA to expand to include flight attendants and AMEs at some point to be able to cover the whole, because as we've talked about before, no one element in aviation is the most important. It's all about this different uh, roles and uh, positions coming together to make that one flight happen. There's a scarcity of AMEs right now. Uh, it's not in the news a lot. It might be in the news a little bit, but just cause it's not glamorous, right? It's not one of those things that makes headlines. Uh, so this is a good time to become an aircraft maintenance engineer, but some people don't know it, that opportunity exists or don't know how to make that work. So hopefully in the near future, we'll start some programs and initiatives to get that ball rolling. That's one thing that I've really observed about aviation is that overall as an industry, I think we traditionally have done a terrible job at promoting the industry and jobs other than really pilot and cabin crew members. Uh, those are the jobs that are most visible. Um, maybe if you're really lucky, you know what an air traffic controller is. But beyond that, you're not necessarily thinking of all the different roles within aviation because the industry hasn't shared them. So it's, it's these grassroots groups like this, like TVA. Um, I can also think of um, uh, Urban Pilots Network. I can think of Elevate Aviation, groups that are dedicated to trying to just promote aviation careers um, to the mainstream and not just, again, the jobs that you're traditionally seen, because there's a personnel shortage in every facet of aviation and it just keeps compounding. So it's, yeah, a great time to become a maintenance engineer, a great time to become a cabin crew member because those jobs are in demand and they're not showcased. No, they're not. It's just, and it's, you just hit the nail on the head. This is one of the problems I've found after starting this. I didn't realize it was a problem until now that Aviation, uh, it's almost like we in the industry gatekeep all this information from mm. the general public, from the populace. Because it's even things, I, was, I had a conversation the other day, like things about why you should wear a seatbelt. There's no reason why there are no ads at airports talking about why you should wear a seatbelt or how a seatbelt protects you. There, there's really literally no reason or why you shouldn't have a cell phone on. For years, people put are asked to put their cell phones on airplane mode, but no one's taking the time to train people to raise awareness of why you should have that cell phone off versus a car seatbelt where there's commercials about when your seatbelt and keeping your seatbelt on. So apart from the mentoring and all that, the career development stuff, I'm also trying to make an effort to just make aviation more visible to regular people, everyday people, kind of drop that glamour that has gone up and show, hey, we're just normal people with, we just happen to have a skill set that almost anyone can learn. Now, you've mentioned your mentor and instructor, Patrick, a lot throughout the episode. Mm. And I think that's so touching that you were able to have that connection with an instructor. But mm. how do you think your flight training experiences would have gone had you not had Patrick's influence so early on into your flight training? Oh, well, I think I would have, mm, I probably wouldn't have gotten as 
far as I've gotten in the amount of time that I did, because then I would have had to flounder and kind of uh, lock my way through things like most people do right now. Uh, now, that said, in the earlier, for the earlier aspects of my training, uh, uh, MFC had, is really good with the way they set up their instructors and the instructor student thing. Uh, because it's such a big school, the syllabus is very rigid and there's lots of oversight. And so more often than not, you, you will be guided. You'll, you'll get your licenses and ratings and you know whatnot. Uh, but yeah, you'll learn what you should learn, that kind of thing. The knowledge, knowledge uh, aspect is very solid. You will be a knowledgeable, well-rounded pilot. Now, as to without him giving all the pushes he gave, mm, I don't know, I probably would have gone some other way. Who knows? It, it truly does sound, I mean, again, I you can sort of just hear my envy of having this experience, but uh, yeah, no, it, it truly sounds like that was just such a formative thing. And again, how, how lucky are you to have had that? If you, if you didn't feel lucky or if you weren't as aware of how lucky you were after this, you're, you definitely are after speaking to me. <laughs> oh yeah, some people have heart, but I've had, you know, and you and I were talking a couple of weeks back, you know, about your experience and just other people's experience. And I know enough, I've seen enough to know my experience is not the norm. It's, it's kind of like an outlier kind of thing and uh i i that's i hope and i'm working towards uh an aviation industry an aviation training culture where that becomes the norm you know where you can go into flight school and hopefully that flight school has that culture and even through so my dream is through tva we breed a breed of pilots who have that awareness that hey you're getting this from us as you go through your career also do this and eventually they'll do it to their students if they become instructors and you know even if the flight school itself doesn't have that culture the pilot group will have that culture and that culture will also extend to the flight attendant group and the AME group and whatever groups whatever streams we do have down the line and it'll become that a change from the inside out where at some point the flight schools will be forced to behave that way because they will be staffed by pilots and trainers who have gone through our process and learned to change their thinking to that uh, form of thinking. And, and what I admire about you is that you are able to see your experiences for what they were. You recognize that it was an outlier. You recognize how, how lucky and special that is. And instead of just sort of saying, well, I had it this easy and, or not necessarily easy, but it went this way for me and how lucky am I and moving on, you want to try and make aviation training a little bit better for other people who didn't have that experience. I, I commend you on being the change you want to see because it would have been too easy <laughs> to just sort of say, look, I really lucked out and moved on. I know, and that's, that's, I mean, that's the problem. That's how aviation has gotten where it is. Everyone, everyone just, works hard and they're like well i'm done i'm facing my career and just chasing it and you know it's a lot of work but i think it it's needed and it'll be it is satisfying when i you know when someone has a good has a better experience you know when you give them an idea and you see the light bulb going in their head like oh and like ha see 
now this person is one step closer to having a better you know, career or maybe not even get into aviation because there's also that. It's not, not everyone that gets into aviation should be in aviation. It's, so being able to tell someone, uh, yeah, this might not be you know, the best career path. Have you thought about being a traffic controller though? You know, kind of thing. It does sound like it would be incredibly rewarding. And in addition to TVA, you are also the pilot development lead with the Black Aviation Professionals Network. How did you first hear about that then? Uh, so that was through one of their uh, company members, Ariane. Yeah, right at the same time, I was uh, an instructor. And why were we talking? Well, we'd met socially. And then, you know, I, I talked about TV and she's like, oh, she talked about Bappen. And then we're like, oh yeah, let's have a coffee. Let's have co a coffee someday and, you know, talk about it. And we sat and she told me a little bit of what uh, Bappen was doing. You know, I told her a little bit about what TV was doing. And she's like, oh yeah, you should talk to Tanya. And funny, a couple of days before that conversation, uh, I connected with Tanya on LinkedIn and we kind of had a chat you're like, hey, hey, you know, what are you up to? Yeah, it looks good. I wish I have a chat someday. <laughs> and then after that, I meet Ariana, and then we have another conversation. And then, you know, we had a meeting with uh, Tanya and Ariana and came up with, you know, different things. We talked about what I talked about, what TV was doing. They talked about the plans that Bappen had. And there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of parallels into what we were doing. And I think that, uh, from what we said, from what we, if there's one thing we've learned in aviation, it is that uh, there is more efficiency to be gained when you pull people into one crew instead of having different people kind of pulling in different directions, even if it's in the same general direction. And so it was kind of a no brainer for me to come into Commander of the Bappen Umbrella and head the pilot development there. Now, with the pilot development, I know you mentioned there's a lot of parallels between what you do uh, through that and with TVA, but what are maybe some of the differences between the work that TVA is doing and then, I guess, sort of the pilot development through Bappen? Uh, well, for one, Bappen's uh, dealing with uh, Canada for now. It's, there's a huge focus on just the Canadian experience we're developing now. Uh, Black aviators. Uh, now for TVA, it's one of the core, apart from the mentorship part, one of the things TVA does is international students, catering mm -hmm. to international students. Uh, that's also from my experience as an international student, because when I went through flight school, I, uh, my mentor also helped in that aspect. You know, when I had to get my driver's license conversion, I did the driver's test in his car, hmm. you know? Uh, so that is a support system that international students really should have because aviation is a very, not to sound, you know, special, but being a pilot sucks you in. It's a whole lifestyle. It's more than mm -hmm. just a job. You know, it, you, you lose contact with friends. Most of, 90% of my friends are pilots or flight attendants or, you know, in aviation in some way. And so it's important to be able to provide support for someone who, so you're in flight school, you lose your weekends, you lose contact with your family members, even when they're, you're from here. But now 
throw in six hours, a six hour time difference. So think about you have a really bad flight, you know, everything that could go wrong went wrong. You just want to go home and cry and pick up the phone, call your mom, call your dad, call your sibling. But for this student, they can't because they pick up the phone and their family's in bed. Right. And so mm -hmm. just creating that support system of uh, a safety blanket, you know, someone that they can get in touch with. And so that's one big thing that TVA does. Bathroom doesn't do that. Uh, and then also international, just the international aspect of things, I would say. Uh, and then the lots of the grassroots, the grassroots moving, like talking to schools, that goes through BAPIN. Like that's uh, more BAPIN thing than for TVA, that's more like one of our fringe uh, initiatives. It's been done. No, and I, I'd never really sort of thought of myself in this way, but I'm, my family lived overseas and I came back to Canada to do my flight training. Mm. And there was a five hour time difference and I sort of packed up and all of you guys, I'll see you guys at the holidays. And I guess I'd not maybe clocked that I was potentially having, even though I'm, I'm a local, I was going to school in a city that I grew up in. I mm. knew people in the city, even though all my friends had moved away for university. So it was just sort of me sort of left here. Um, but yeah, I guess that, yeah, having, if I knew that I could have had someone that would have helped me get set up, I didn't have a Canadian driver's license, mm. trying to sort of, yeah, get reoriented. And even though I, I knew how things worked, I knew where to go. I knew who to talk to. It was still really challenging doing that on my own. So I can appreciate for someone new to Canada, even just uh, for only a couple of years, how, how much it would mean to them to have like basically like a, sort of a buddy system almost of someone that's sort of designated to help you and uh, not sort of in the same way of like a sponsor, but someone that's just like willing to take the time and help you get you set up so that your time doing that flight training and your life outside of flying is a little bit easier. And yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of liked it because I see, oh, so when I, in my flying, I stop, I love to read. I love, I actually have, most times I have three or four novels that I'm reading at the same time. And when I was in aviation full-time before the pandemic, I'd stopped reading. You know, I, I would, I, not completely, not cold turkey, but it wasn't really, I didn't really have time for fiction because I'm studying. And, because I threw, even at my, my stint at the airlines, I still kept my instructor reading. I still taught instructor on the side. And you still need to study, for, you have to study for that. And I used to write, before I got into aviation. Like I created right like plumes, short, short stories and things like that. And I stopped completely because I just didn't have time to be, I didn't have time and there was nothing to write about. I'm I'm busy. I'm as an instructor, you're working a 15 hour day, and then you only have time to have a meal, take a shower, go to bed. You know, you, you only have seven hours sometimes of sleep uh, in your 24-hour cycle. And then you have one day off in the week. It's a grueling schedule, right? As a, in the airlines, it gets better. You have time off. But then because of my situation, I was shuttling, I was commuting. So my time off shrunk to like half of what it was. But COVID hit and I picked up reading again. I'm like, oh, I love reading. I started writing. I had one of my short stories get, uh, got an offer to be made into a webtoon, right? So it's, it 
I, I love that part of it because now I've made a promise to myself, I'm never going to stop writing again because that was such a huge part of me growing up. I always wrote, like all my friends knew two things about me. I love to write and I wanted to be a pilot kind of thing. I kind of lost one of them on the way, but I found it now. So that's great. No, and I even think for myself that I remember sort of being like 17, 18 and at a crossroads of do I go into aviation and get to enjoy other things that I have interest in on the side or do I go into one of those pursuits and always have aviation as sort of my passion on the side and ultimately I chose to go aviation full on and everything else could still be something I enjoyed and yeah I mean the pandemic for me stayed busy for different reasons and but at the same time having the space having the capacity to sort of return to those things that I like outside of aviation Um, Mm. remembering how much I wanted to work in radio and broadcasting I wasn't thinking about that when I started a podcast, but I'm mindful of that now that, oh yeah, I really liked radio and mm. I wanted to work as a journalist if I wasn't going to be in aviation. Um, so it's, yes, these little things of sort of like maybe having the space to find yourself again. That was uh, an un, unforeseen uh, moment from the pandemic. Yeah. And as you said, it, it, uh, it also takes the willingness to find yourself like you have to be willing to be like okay time to find myself again and not just wallow like oh woe is me (laughs) now how do you hope the work you do through BAPIN influences the next generation of black aviation professionals uh well it's I forget who I was talking to recently and I said being a black pilot almost feels like you're a pseudo celebrity uh and not always in a good way because you stand out for no reason, but just because you're black and you're a pilot. And you'll get the same thing when, as a woman, you're gonna get passengers walk up to you, oh my God, you're a female pilot? It's like, oh, wow, you can see, you have eyes. (laughs) But uh, that is something I want to change. Uh, The black community uh, in different, different aspects of the community and for different reasons, have so many barriers that we have in everything we do. It's like in it's just this subconscious. If sometimes it feels the world is actively pushing back on you, and I, it's hard to quantify in words. And sometimes what what makes you make that effort is seeing someone else like you doing the same thing, and then you say, "Oh, that person can do it." I can try. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work out, and you know, not you don't succeed every time you try. That's that is life. And so my work with Bappen, I hope I can inspire, you know, those black children to. To I mean, I'm work. It's a two pronged approach: working with them to show them to be an icon, like hey, you can be like me, but also working in the background to try to give them those opportunities, give them those resources. Uh, aviation traditionally is a family thing. Majority of pilots have an uncle, aunt, have someone in aviation who's who's a sponsor, like what you were talking about, who guides the path. You know, it's like someone whose dad is in mainline or something. And again, not a lot of black pilots, so not a lot of black uncle pilots in the black community. That's one. And then secondly, unfortunately, most black communities are not in great, uh, in a great demographic. They're not in a good uh, economic bracket, let's put it that way. And so 
for them just going to any sort of school is a challenge. And then you now bring aviation that is expensive. I mean, uh, a nice, comfortable pair of headset costs a costs $1,500, a Bose headset, $1,500 just for a headset, right? And that's not, that's not a splurge. That is something you should have. Everyone should have a Bose headset. Also, you're going to lose your hair in by 40. Uh, so when you put it into that perspective, it's doubly hard for this younger Black uh, kids, children coming up to be able to see this opportunity and see it as a realistic opportunity. And seeing it in myself, where, as I said, growing up, we weren't financially, you know, in a good spot, but it still happened just because my parents made smart financial decisions, you know, they worked towards it. And so now trying to, first of all, spark that dream in the children and then create these opportunities for the parents to key into, to nurture that dream in that child. And it, uh, not to be pessimistic, but we are, I think this generation is still in the spark. We're still sparking things. It hasn't really caught on as it should. Uh, everyone pays lip service to the initiative and, you know, there's all this drive of uh, inclusivity and diversity that, you know, uh, it's in the right, it's headed in the right direction, but it hasn't really moved a lot when you think about it. If you, and you just have to read the news headlines to understand what's going on. And yeah, so I think we will affect a few in the, of the younger Black generation. But again, they'll also become beacons to the next generation. And maybe in 50 years, uh, it'll be normal to have an all-Black crew. And we won't have to celebrate the fact that there's an all-Black crew on mainline. It would just be a thing. You know, we shouldn't have to celebrate that. It should just happen. Or, and same for females in aviation there should just be all female crews. It should be common enough that it's a thing, right? So hopefully one day it'll get there and it's we, you know, put in the work to try to move things in that direction. No, and I, I've spoke about this with Tanya and Ariana, the idea that sort of my own, my own blind spots, my own bias coming into aviation, my own privilege coming into aviation, that I had a initial class when I started and even though we had black men, South Asian men, East Asian men, and a bunch of white men, I didn't see the race of it. I saw there's all these men and then there's this small handful of women. I wasn't clued in to the differences of sort of everyone's privilege of, and race going into aviation. I saw it very much not in, I mean, black and white. I saw it very much in, those identifying as men and those identifying as women mm. and understanding that a black man is going to face I mean I could understand that a black man would face certain challenges just being in a predominantly white industry but sort mm. of thinking well there's some advantage there because he's a man mm -hmm. and not necessarily clocking oh no there's there's a lot of of challenges that come with being a black man in aviation just by being yourself and just by showing up as a black person um, understanding that it's not so much about men versus women, because that was the lens I approached aviation from. Mm. It is really about 
well, what's the makeup of these people? What do they look like? Because it's not just about men versus women. It's not just about the fact that the aviation industry is predominantly white across the different facets of it Mm. and understanding more of the challenges that people were having. I could understand that a woman of color would have challenges because she was a woman of color and again, a person of color and a woman in aviation, but really starting to understand, okay, she has all these challenges. She has all these other challenges that I do not understand and have the privilege that I don't understand and don't see and don't face. It was, uh, it's been a very, it's been a very interesting reckoning within myself of understanding. No, it's not just about gender parity. There should be mm. more focus on sort of promoting the diversity of aviation outside of just the lens of gender. Cause I think that's the one that the industry is comfortable talking about right now. And yes. we're working towards talking about more about uh, racial um, inclusion and diversity within aviation. And it's, it's interesting you say that because when I talk to people, I, I mean, right now I'm going and waxing poetic about this subject because that is what you asked me and that is what I'm talking about. But I, uh, my opinion of it is there's so many lines in the sand right now. You know, even sometimes you hear in the black community, there's like, oh, you're born in North America versus not born in North America. That's a new line that some people are trying to draw. And what we're supposed to be doing is erasing those lines, wiping the lines away, not drawing more lines to it. And I believe that's what being inclusive is about, like lowering, removing those lines, just being like, okay, let's look at the flight deck right now. What's not there? We don't have women. We don't have Black people. We don't have uh, Asian people, like different ethnicities. And I'm like, okay, why? Because there, there's a problem, right? It's not just about and that, that's what I try to communicate. It's not just about hiring. It's not just about, oh, we're gonna hire, 50% of our hires are women. That's not the problem. Cause now you fix the optics of it. You fix how it looks. The problem is for some reason, not a lot of women are going into aviation. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the problem that needs to be fixed. We need to go back there and see, okay, what's going on? What's wrong there? Now, for the color, for the for black people, if you go back to Africa, majority of the pilots who fly in Africa are white. I was in Nigeria last August. I did multiple flights between Abuja and Lagos. Both I did. I went Lagos to Abuja and then Abuja back to Lagos. Both trips, pilot was white. Uh, the lead flight attendant was an Asian lady, and there's like one black flight attendant hmm. on a flight operated in Nigeria where there's hundreds of pilots who are licensed who have no jobs. Why? Lots of companies, Voyager, Powell, have contracts in Africa. They go fly in Africa. Why? Why do we, in a country, or in a continent, sorry, with this population, why can we not fly ourselves? So there is an underlying problem there. Now, I'm trying to figure out what the problem is so we can fix it. But the first step is to realize there is a problem and come to the table and try to figure out that problem out. Now you've mentioned, of course, Patrick throughout the episode. And uh, again, I'm clearly very envious that you've had him as an instructor and the different ways that he's been able to help you and support you. But I'm curious to know who is someone in aviation you admire outside of being Patrick and why? Um, outside of Patrick, it would be uh, Captain Spear, Kate Spear at Porter. 
she uh she's just such a great teacher you know she was she knows she has this knowledge and she knows how to pass it across and she she would answer your questions before you even ask them which makes it hard to be a great fo asking all the questions when the questions are already answered and she just i think she just slips at least in my experience she slipped into she slips into the mentor role effortlessly she just that's it almost feels like that's a part of who she is and uh in my time at Porter, i remember uh interacting with her and thinking okay in a few years when i become a training captain this is how i want to model my behavior after it maybe speaks to, um, I guess, just how tight-knit aviation is or the fact that we're all sort of on the porter sphere of influence here. Um, but Kate has been mentioned before as someone that people admire on our show. And I also admire her. And I think that one of the biggest reasons is that she is so easy to want to be like. I, I joke that I want to be just like Kate when I grow up, that she just has this incredible ability to be so approachable, be so willing to pay it forward, and also, you know, she takes no shit. She takes, like, she's, you don't want to mess with her. She, she has this ability to be incredibly approachable and kind and in making sure that every one of her mentees and the people she checks in on are doing okay. And you also know that she's like a tough cookie and she is exact, she has this uncanny ability to walk that line perfectly. And it's, uh, it's easy to see why you admire her. Yeah, it's you you put it into great words. That ability to draw the line and be like, okay, this is how things are gonna be, and yet be pleasant and be approachable. And yeah, it's it's a hard combination. It it takes and I think it takes work. I mean, obviously to us, it looks like it comes naturally to her, but I imagine it also she nurtured it over time. But yes, that's one quality I want to have because it's so easy to just be one way or the other. It's easy to just be nice and be lost in the niceness versus or be you know straight and you know be unapproachable so she balances it very well in her in her mentoring and her teaching and all that yeah she's she's a great pilot now what advice would you have for someone considering a career in aviation um i would say make sure you go into it prepared it takes lots to have a successful career in aviation, it takes a lot of planning, uh, finances, and just also your, tra your trajectory and to figure out uh, what, what you're gonna get and why. And there is a, there's a flow to things that makes things more efficient. Uh, as an example, it's a smart idea to get your do your medical before you start flying to just get your cat one just so you know you can hold a cat category one no one no one tells you that like no, no one will maybe someone might tell you if you lock out but it's not written anywhere that hey do your category one and then you go get sink this money in and then a couple of months later transport's like hey we're sorry you can't have a category one because xyz in your medical history so i would say my biggest advice would be get in touch with someone in the industry, uh, ask questions, always ask questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question, uh, ask. And sometimes just 
get the person to talk to you and listen, you know, and be ready to be flexible in your thinking because uh, you're going to come in, most chances are you're going to come in with preconceptions that might be, you know, incorrect. And it's tough to hear someone tell you, oh, that your plan of going to flight school and becoming an airline pilot? No, that's not a thing. You go to flight school and then you go work on a ramp or you instruct, you know. So yeah, my advice would be get a hold of someone in the industry, an actual person, you know, the forum and ask questions from them and get answers and keep asking those questions at every stage in your career. It doesn't, it never ends. There's always somewhere higher you're going to get to. And there's someone you should be asking questions. I'm going to just tag on with what you said about finding someone in the industry to sort of ask your questions to. People are surprisingly approachable. I mm. find that as much as we've sort of suggested throughout the show that you have a tough experience in flight school and then you just never want to see a flight school again and you're not trying to make it better for the next person because you just don't have the time and energy and you've moved on that people are incredibly willing to pay it forward when you have a genuine passion and enthusiasm people will make the time for you mm -hmm. i mean be be professional be polite and expect that i mean this is someone working as a professional in aviation they only have so much time but reach out to people because they're probably pretty okay with being someone that you're asking your questions to that's one thing I've learned just through my experiences even through the show you never know who's willing to have a discussion with you about something and don't talk yourself out of someone don't say no before you before you uh, give yourself that chance yeah and that's uh one of my mentors told me if when you ask the worst that could happen is they say no and you're left, you haven't lost anything, you're left where you are, right? But best case, you get an answer, and that helps you uh, go forward. And as you, to build on what you said about being professional, uh, I think from our conversation so far, it's easy, you can infer how small the aviation community is. And it is super small. Everyone knows everyone in maybe two, three degrees of separation. So, be courteous to everyone you meet. That's what I would say, right from flight school, your classmates, your colleagues, the instructors, the management, because you never know. So you never know which classmate is going to be your captain someday. So be just be courteous to everyone. You, know, you don't have to be friends with them, but you know, have a positive relationship as far as is possible with as many people as you can. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career so far? Ooh, I've got lots of those. <laughs> you can have more than one. <laughs> okay, so favorite. Uh, this is dark. First one's dark pilot humor. Uh, so one of my, in my first months of instructing, the student I had, who I'd had him from day one, and uh, we were doing his cross country, his Spitfire cross country. And so we're flying to Fredericton in this day 20. And the day 20 glides. It's not like the Cessna where you, it punishes you if you don't flare at the right height. The day 20, it's a wider, there's a wider range of flare heights that you'll be fine. And so we hit the upper limit of the range. Nothing's happening. And I think to myself, 
he'll do something. That's fine. I, I you know, we just had did circuits two days ago. He can land. You know, we get into the range of where the roundout should be happening. Nothing's happening. And I think, oh, well, maybe he's just gonna round out late. Yeah, it's it's fine, probably. <laughs> and then we we hit the lower limit of the roundout, and there's still no roundout. And I had to go full power, I had to literally smack the power lever all the way forward, just no, not go splat on the runway. And you know, we landed, it just worked out perfectly that with, with all the power in, we just bang, had a firm touchdown. And I took control and, you know, I was silent for the next hour because I was just, you know, in my head, like, hmm, we almost just, you know, splattered pancaked on the one way right now. Hmm. And uh, that was, that was a good, it's a favorite memory because it was traumatic for me, but also it taught me a good lesson about limits <laughs> and you know, knowing when to take control. And that for me, was the defining moment of, what made me comfortable teaching landings because then I solidified I saw how far I could go because I went <laughs> I got to the limit <laughs> so I'm like okay so let's not get there next time kind of thing so that's my favorite moment from instructing uh now from my favorite point was probably taking off out of or out of Chicago and one of the departures there, it's uh, it's just you take off when the sun's rising, it's hitting the skylines perfectly. And then you're on one of the complicated departures where the pilot monitoring is calling out headings and speeds to you. And you know, you're flying, hitting everything at the right moment. And I don't know how to put it. There's this feeling of being in sync, of being part of something that's bigger than you you know when you make that transition you fly through this busy airspace and the sun's rising buildings are glim shimmering you know and your hand flying it's just i don't know how to express it into words but yeah i had this one takeoff where everything just came together and it was beauty it was perfection like a perfectly choreographed ballet exactly it was i can't even like it made shivers run down my spine. That was how good that departure was. I'm often on the show, we have sort of like the, high, the highlight reels what people get to share with us. And I think for me, it's really interesting to hear a guest share a moment that was maybe change, uh, the result of a lot of change for them, but it was kind of a, a, a scary moment. You sort of, you, you frightened yourself. You're allowed to do that in a training context and then you learn from it. And I think sort of having that, that learning moment going along with that, even though you were the instructor, yeah, it's, it's those moments that, that stick with you because that shows you just sort of what the limit was, what your own personal limits were and how you apply them is what matters. So I'm, I'm always interested to hear what, uh, what's a highlight for someone. Mm. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook is where I can be found. Shoot me a message. It takes me days to uh, reply to messages sometimes because I might not get the notification. Or I might be fine when you shoot me the message and then I read the message and then go on my next flight and forget to respond to it. But yeah, shoot me a message and uh, I'm always open to having a chat with, and, with everyone and anyone. We will be sure to have all those links in the episode description for our listeners. 
Apelua Yorton, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you, Laura. It was a great chat. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.